How do you talk to someone who is dying? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today are Dr. David Feldman and Dr. Andrew Lasher, authors of the new book, The End of Life Handbook, a compassionate guide to connecting with and caring for a dying loved one. Dr. Feldman is Assistant Professor of Counseling Psychology at Santa Clara University. Dr. Lasher is the Director of Palliative Medicine at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. Dr. Feldman, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you so much for having us. Dr. Lasher, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Feldman, let's start with you. Why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I sensed a real need for it. In talking with both families of people who are dying and the patients, and as well with physicians and other healthcare providers, I was hearing sort of complimentary messages. Families were saying, we really want to know more. We really want more guidance. We really want more comfort at this time. And healthcare providers were saying, we wish we had a resource. We wish we had some way of actually lightening our burden a little bit with families, that families can often take immense amounts of time and that family misunderstandings can often lead to blockades in care, patients not getting the best care possible. And so I personally wanted to offer a book that would meet both of those needs, that would offer families the comfort and information they desire and would offer physicians a tool that they could give to families that would help to answer a lot of their questions, these very important questions that maybe the physician feels there isn't always enough time in their consultations to answer. Dr. Lasher, let's get into the wonderful information you two have put in the book. Give us a 101 on artificial food and fluids at the end of life. Wow, there probably isn't a more charged topic in many respects than that. My personal story is that I I come from a family that is half Jewish and half Italian. And other than guilt, the only thing that both sides agree on is food. Uh, Nurturing our loved ones, we do that with food. Whenever they're happy, there are celebrations we eat. When people are dying, they lose the ability to eat. They lose the desire to eat. And that is rarely something that is traumatic at the end of life for a patient, but it can be horrific for a family for which food has always been the medium of exchange. So most patients, when they are suffering from a terminal disease, begin to lose appetite. They may lose weight. They may start to eat and drink substantially less than they were eating before. They may need substantially less than they needed before. And for families watching that, they are really traumatized. So it's important to speak to families in a way that acknowledges their loss of the ability to nurture with food, but to encourage them to nurture in other ways. Kind words, just comfort with the surroundings, conversation, holding somebody's hand at the end of life. It's very rare in the last days of life that food and fluids improve either quantity or quality of life. Now, all that said, there are certainly religious traditions, cultural traditions, that just can't get around that. And in those circumstances, it can be very reasonable to continue food and sometimes even fluids at the very end of life. It's just important not to let those things become the focus of care, because as far as a patient's comfort is concerned, they're rarely the critical detail. That may be important for the family, but ask a patient if he is hungry, he'll tell you. 
if he's hungry, then food might make sense. And if he's not hungry, from a medical standpoint, it probably doesn't at the end of life. Dr. Feldman, how do you respond to loved ones who say, aren't we starving them to death when we're not feeding them at the end of life? I often talk about the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of the person who is dying. I don't know if it's entirely medically correct. I'm not a physician. But I talk about how the body has a certain kind of wisdom and often knows what it needs. And that when someone is dying, it's important to listen to that wisdom of the body. And if the patient is saying, I'm not hungry, if the patient is saying, I don't need food, that's probably because they're not hungry and they really don't need food and that it actually can be more distressing to give food. Now, that's similar to what Andrew just said. I also think it's important to listen and validate the family's concerns. They genuinely care about this person and they genuinely are afraid that they're starving this person. And I think that they're not going to listen to what you have to tell them unless you sit back and really listen to their concerns like it's the first time you've ever heard them. And unless you can demonstrate to them that you really get it. And then they'll listen to you saying this wisdom of the body bit that I just said, which is very true, but I think you need to listen to them before you say it. That's great advice. Dr. Lasher, what do you believe are the biggest misconceptions healthcare professionals have about pain management? You know, asking for the biggest misconception, there are so many, and I combat them every day in the hospital. Physicians are incredibly fearful of opiate pain medications. We know that they come with a heavy burden of side effects, that they can cause sedation and confusion, they can make people's breathing slow down. But the truth is, when used effectively and appropriately, there is no contraindication between good pain management with narcotics and with maximizing both the quantity and quality of somebody's life. The biggest misconception is that we have to make this artificial choice between giving somebody good pain management and providing them longevity, that is so rarely an actual choice. That's the biggest misconception I notice, and I see it in both physicians and nurses. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me are Dr. David Feldman and Dr. Andrew Lasher, discussing their new book, The End of Life Handbook, a compassionate guide to connecting with and caring for a dying loved one. Dr. Feldman, how do you talk to someone who's dying? It's a really hard question, and it's hard both for healthcare providers and for families to talk to somebody who is dying. It is awkward, it's difficult, and because it's such an emotionally loaded thing to talk about, dying, end-of-life care, all of these things, what I find is that providers and family members alike often shut down the conversation often to try to protect the person who is dying from the emotions. For instance, there was a, a couple in their 60s that I saw, and the man was dying. He had cancer. He was in the process of making the transition from oncology to hospice. And the interesting thing and the disturbing thing was they weren't talking about it, that they had not 
hardly said word one to each other about his disease, the ordeal that both of them were going through. And the interesting thing is, is that both of them had said to me and another social worker almost the same thing, but in reverse. Both had said, I want to talk about it. I need the support from my spouse. But if I talked about it, it would upset my spouse. So both were avoiding talking about it to protect the other person. And yet both really wanted to talk about it and wanted to get the support. And there are all kinds of ways that we shut down conversations. We use well-meaning phrases like, don't talk like that. Everything's going to be fine. Think positive. Keep fighting. Don't get upset. Be strong. All of these are wonderful things to say at the right times, but often the message they give to patients is, I don't want to talk about this. It's not appropriate to talk about dying. And instead, in the book, we recommend wording to families directly like, this must be hard for you. I get that you feel scared. I can tell this is upsetting. If you don't know what to say, you can often simply say, I don't know what to say, but I want you to know that I'm here for you. That kind of phrasing opens up the conversation as opposed to closing it down. And that's often, almost always, what's best to do. What's your best advice to healthcare professionals when they hear two loved ones say, I want to talk about it, but I don't want to upset the other? What are the bridge tools there? Well, the bridge tools are surprisingly simple. You want to get them together. It takes time to do that, and I think that's part of the job of a psychologist if there's one available, certainly a chaplain or a social worker if there's one available, and that's exactly what happened in the situation that I just talked about. I think it was the social worker that said, you all need to talk to each other, and actually got them in the same room and said, I don't know if you realize this, but you've both said the same thing to me, which is that you both want to talk about how difficult this is. And you both want to talk about the illness and your own feelings, and yet you're both afraid of hurting the other person. That's a great bridge. And at that point, if it really is the case that both people want to talk about it, the conversation often has itself. (laughs) It happens by itself. And I think at that point, you can just be a facilitator and you can just say, is there anything else you want to add to that? Is there anything else you want to add to that? And just help them in the most commonsensical way that you can, using your best social skills to have that talk. Dr. Lasher, describe the best way to have a conversation about do not resuscitate orders with patients and families. That is a conversation that a lot of doctors fear, and it's one that they don't always handle that well. It's like any other medical procedure. There's an old saying in medical school, see one, do one, teach one. It's the same with a conversation like this. You see one and then You need to do them, and then eventually you can teach them. You know, most patients have thought about this. They've seen loved ones go through something like this. Family members are seeing more and more of their elders deal with this type of situation, ICU care at the end of life. They may have thoughts about it that are very clear. Like any of these sensitive topics, I almost always go in open-ended. I want to learn what they're thinking about that. Doctors sometimes fear the conversation, worry that it's going to turn into a fight. Where, you know, they may already agree on what the right thing to do is. I first try to learn what a patient's thinking, what their goals are. Then I'm going to lay out the options, what the different choices are, whether to attempt cardiac resuscitation and extreme ICU care or whether the focus at that point really ought to be 
discomfort doing everything you can up to that point. But if it gets to that point, focusing on comfort. And then I'll give them my opinion. You know, I'll say, these are the choices. Then this is what I think I would recommend to my father, my grandfather. And then we'll come to a decision. You know, so first determine the goals and the values. Then talk about what the choices are, if there are any. Then give my opinion as a doctor. And then together with a patient or a patient and family, come to a decision. Dr. Feldman and Dr. Lasher, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your new book, The End of Life Handbook, a compassionate guide to connecting with and caring for a dying loved one. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.